My name is Mirat Mabuk. I'm the Deputy Director and Director of Research and Programs for the Rafi Hadidi Center in the Middle East. Um, our numbers have been slightly depleted because of the storm warnings. DC is a town that really, really likes to leave six hours early. So um, some people have already scattered. Thank you for coming. Um, we're here to talk about a fairly important event, uh, important subject. We're talking about um, the new administration's foreign policy. Now, I'll introduce you to the panel in a moment, but we just wanted to say very, very quickly, questions, uh, we will be having a, a moderated discussion, and then there will be questions at the end. There are cards on your, uh, on your chairs, all right? If you have a question, please just fill it out. Someone will be there to take it from you, and, uh, and we will do the questions like that. All right, so over on our left, um, we are going to kick off with uh, Dr. Heikel uh, Mahfouz. Dr. Mahfouz is a non-resident senior fellow on Tunisia. And then we have Dr. Hisham Helia, who is a non-resident senior fellow on Egypt. Dr. Kristen Smith-Dewen, we're very lucky, she joins us today from the Arab Gulf um, States Institute, Washington, her specialization is the Gulf. And then Dr. Karim Mizran on my left um, is our senior fellow on North Africa. I won't waste time over their, um, their profiles because you have them and I'd like to kick off. So Hekel, uh, perhaps you could kick us off by talking about Tunisia because what we just wanted to say quickly was um, it may be a new administration, but the question is how much does foreign policy really change? I mean, how much is foreign policy dictated by existing geopolitical interests and conditions? How much of it is open to change? And how is the region looking towards this new administration? What does the region want to see from a new administration on a new foreign policy? So we're going to kick off with Dr. Mahfouz, who's going to uh, start us off on Tunisia. Good afternoon. Uh uh, everybody, um, the, the region, to start with your last question, maybe is uh, the region is looking uh, and expecting uh, very much from the new administration, since there is a real need for support to foster the economies, uh, broadly speaking, and uh, also to assist and support the democratization process, specifically in the case of uh, Tunisia. Whether there should be any change in the, uh, with regard to the U.S. foreign policy uh, compared to the previous uh, uh, administrations, uh, I think that it is important to, to see uh, what uh, the, the new administration and Trump's administration is going to use uh, for his foreign policy in, in, in North uh, Africa, what are essentially the, the, the parting the, the president uh, Trump, um, and in, in that regard, we don't see, uh, let's say, major changes uh, compared to the previous administrations. Since uh, we guess and uh, uh, we consider that uh, he's going to consolidate the the, the, the action uh, and the leverage of the diplomatical and the military uh, influence uh, in the region. Uh, made in, in North Africa and the, uh, specifically in, in, uh, in the Maghreb, and trying to find out uh, 
the equilibrium between uh, what we call hard and soft uh, uh, power. Uh, the, the the region will be, I think, uh, uh, an opportunity for the American administration to create uh, an economic continuum in the Maghreb, uh, Sahel uh, region with uh, strengthening uh, the military cooperation uh, in cracking down terrorist groups and the extreme violent uh, uh, organization. And uh, uh, we, we, we see maybe the, the change in, in, in dealing with the, the main political actors, domestic political actors in the region. Maybe there shouldn't be an exclusive focus uh, on uh, political parties as the unique and single uh, 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 interlocutors uh, in, in, in the region when it comes to the uh, domestic uh, uh, affairs. Uh, I think that uh, it was clearly mentioned for uh, Trump's administration that security uh, is, is, is the main concern and that uh, is not going to change uh, for a while. So uh, the, the priorities in, in, in the region and for Tunisia, I think, that will be to strengthen the cooperation with the Tunisian government uh, in, the fight, uh, in the fight against terrorism and uh, organized crimes, issues of uh, returnees, uh, countering uh, violent extremist uh, organizations, and building more capabilities uh, and expertise uh, in that regard. And uh, I think that the, 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 the security situation uh, improved uh, in Tunisia over the last uh, months, and we can build upon such expertise because the move and the improvement was quite quickly compared to other uh, countries. Uh, so that would uh, make uh, the uh, Trump administration maybe more receptive uh, to cooperation on security assistance within the framework of major uh, aligned non-NATO uh, member. Uh, and that would be bring uh, probably uh, some normative changes uh, in the cooperation, meaning uh, uh, how to solve uh, uh, or how to frame national security concepts and structures in, 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 in uh, for Tunisia, essentially, since uh, we are building these uh, uh, national security uh, structures uh, for, for the time uh, being. So. I think uh, the, the other thing that we can uh, put uh, in the discussion, and I will end with this uh, last uh, idea, uh, I think that there is a great advantage to use Tunisia, not only as uh, uh, an entry point to Africa, because to Africa you have two main entry points, uh, either Morocco or uh, Tunisia, uh, but also uh, to refocus the role of Tunisia in solving uh, and finding out a solution for uh, for the, the problem in, in, in Libya. I think that uh, we can tackle that uh, later. But uh, probably these are the, 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 the main ideas that we can uh, address uh, to start. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for... Before we, we move on to our next panelist, I have a very quick question for you. Now, you mentioned Tunisia's importance. So this is something that a lot of people are curious about. I think a lot of people say that 
one of the reasons for Tunisia's success in the Arab Spring, apart from its political maturity, was the fact that it was perhaps a smaller country that flew under the radar. Well, if it is a smaller country that flies under the radar, why is it really important to continue to concentrate on it? Well, uh, that's, you that's could, true. You I mean, touched on it, but it would be great if you could try and explain. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, it's true that it's a small country, but it, it, it doesn't mean that it's not uh, or less important country than uh, compared to the, the, to the very close uh, neighborhood. I mean, uh, it depends. I mean, on what uh, foreign countries are looking to get from Tunisia and in Tunisia. If it is on the economic level, uh, the workforce is a skilled one. It is a highly educated uh, society. Uh, uh, the transition was was very smooth uh, and success successful uh, until now. And as I mentioned, uh, on the economic level, uh, there should be more engagement in, in, in Africa. Uh, and the potential that Tunisia will be doing the linkage uh, between uh, the America and Europe towards Africa is very important. We trust Tunisia. Uh, it has a traditional and historical role uh, in the region. And I think that the, 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 the moderate society is uh, is is uh, is uh, an asset uh, uh, in, in the country. So, despite the narratives that are trying to find out success story in the region, but I think it it goes beyond uh, that. There is a real potential which makes uh, Tunisia uh, attractive, and uh, it is a trust uh, trustworthy uh, interlocutor uh, in the Mediterranean region. Thank you so much. Perhaps we can move on to some of your neighbors. We take a look at the rest of North Africa and Libya. Kareem, perhaps you can see Thank again. you. Th thank you very much, Mirette. And thank you very much, Haikar, for your uh, splendid introduction and, uh, and your analysis. Um, I have to admit that when I had to sit down and try to answer this question, I, I, I was puzzled by the lack of serious documentation one could study or, or program or something like that. What we had to work on was a series of tweets, declare, uh, comments, statements, flawed decrees, and, and so on. So we have to work on perceptions. And in a region where conspiracies, theories, and where uh, this, this, this kind of vision abounds, it makes very very difficult mixture to work with, very difficult material to, to elaborate an answer which is precise and defined. In general, the U.S. elections, I should say, have been perceived well by, 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 by both the elites and the people in the Maghreb. And I don't know whether that is due to lack of understanding or a misunderstanding, as we will see. But in general, whether that is because of the hostility towards the other candidate, Hillary Clinton, it was perceived widely as being much more of the same, that is uh, continu continuation in the same pro in the same kind of line, the way Obama was perceived, or, or other reasons, I don't know. Fact is that Trump was received well, and his election was, was accepted widely. In Libya, for example, the people who were, who side in the eastern part with the strongman, General Khalifa Haftar, were cheering and were happy and were uh, opening champagne bottles. 
because of uh, of the victory of the victory of Trump, because their perception was that because of what the president uh, Trump said many times that he was in favor of uh, stabilization and the figure of the strongman. And his, he the only time he mentioned something abroad was General Sisi and his and his rule and uh, how much uh, in esteem he has for, for, for General Sisi. Trump's people who are supported by Sisi and by Egypt were all convinced that Trump would side by him. Uh, and, and therefore, they, they welcomed the, this election. And, 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 and the same happened from the other, the other, the other side. There was a large part of the people who wanted a, a wider engagement of the, of the United States. They were hoping that Trump would, would, would mean the United States would lead a change in the, in the area. They would take care of the situation, and they would, and he would resolve the Libyan crisis. This was believed upon the idea that Despite what the tweets said that Trump would not be engaged abroad, he would like to see an America more isolationist than other. Brilliant people said, no, that's not true. He's going to try to show the difference between him and the previous administration and look for a quick fix. And Libya is easy to be resolved if you put all your attention to. So he will apply all his power and his attention to, to, to solve the Libya question. Because you want to you want to show how good he is, you want to make a good point. There's no sign of this in, 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 in any declaration by Trump. But that's what what you gather from uh, the, the the new media or other stuff from the people in the area. And the same thing one can be said for the other Maghreb countries, such as Algeria and uh, and, and 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 Morocco. The elites accepted very well the. the the favor with which Trump looks at stability, at the strongman, and, and, and at order, because it would help them in their trying to resist the democratization trend. In uh, a strong American administration that doesn't pay attention to democratization, to human rights, to, to, all, the, to, to all those values, and pays attention to security and, uh, and, and stability, it's, it's, well, it's, it's a good sign. It's, is definitely welcomed by, by the elites in power. <coughs> and the people, on the other hand, had the impression that the Maghreb was, was not important at all for the United States, that in reality there would be no change in American foreign policy toward the Maghreb because of its lack of interest, because of its lack of, oh, it's, 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 not, it's not interesting for the United States from, from most points of view. And this is a point that later on we'll try to, if you want, Mirad, we'll get deeper into that and try to challenge his vision, because it's true that the Maghreb is, is marginal, probably, to national American national interest today. But there are facts and events that can happen in the area that may bring the area high, high to the attention of the United States. Just, just, just to mention one case for all, the, high, the rising tensions between Algeria and Morocco over the Western Sahara. If that really escalates and, uh, in a clash or in a, or in a re beginning of of the of the war of the sands, or that in that case, the United States will be forced to get involved into it because of the vacuum and security that will happen that could be filled by other actors. The United States will have to intervene and prevent that to happen. So this is more or less what Thank we you. can perceive. We can get, before we before we move on to the I just have a quick question for you. So you're talking about a gap in perception between what. Um, 
some Libyans or Libyan elites, and actually maybe we can come back in a bit to, as to why popularity of the new uh, administration does appear to be centered in elites in many of these countries. But you're talking about a gap in perception between what Libyans think will happen and what you think is likely to happen. How dangerous is that, is that gap? I think it's very dangerous for those people that believe that because Trump said that he likes stability, he's going to side with the, that general or that situation. There are determinants in foreign <coughs> policy which will prevent the United States to, to, to make a 180 degrees change in their foreign policy. Well, in Libya particularly, they cannot go against the interests of their allies. And there are important allies that have an interest in what's going on in Tripolitania, that have an interest in the peaceful solution of the crisis. A Trump that decides, I, I, I switch my, uh, my support from uh, the government in Tripoli, uh, the, 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 the UN-led uh, negotiation in favor of General Haftar will be such a slap in the face of so many of, of its allies, and such a, a, an upsurge in, in, in the policy that, that, that I, I really don't see that happen. Uh, that will really surprise me. All right, well, we'll get back to that later. Hishem, allies. Much has been said uh, and, and made of how well President Abdel Fattah Sisi appears to get on with President Trump. Um, do you think that this is relevant in any way? Do you think that foreign policy is, has personal overtones, or do you th see it matter more as a matter of policy and state? And if so, do you see the relationship with Egypt changing in any way? Well, thank you, Murat, uh, for the question and uh, for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to be back in Washington um, and to see uh, old friends and uh, make new ones. Um, I was, uh, I had a slight grin on my face when Karim mentioned the conspiracy theories affecting narratives in the region, uh, because now when I watch um, American politics from afar, I, I wonder how different it is now, um, because it seems that uh, conspiracy theories are quite popular in this city now. Um, when it comes to um, the relationship between the new administration and um, quite a number of governments in the region, um, including Egypt, um, I think uh, Trump benefited a great deal from a lot of antipathy um, with regards to his opponent. Um, Secretary Clinton uh, was remarkably unpopular among many of those elites in the region for a variety of reasons. Um, and uh, some of those reasons were completely unjustified um, and were complete misrepresentations of what she had done in the past few years. But that really played out extremely well in Egypt. Um, Clinton was associated with a raft of policies that actually she was not responsible for, and neither did she promote, but um, was identified as being that, you know, uh, identified as being pro-Muslim Brotherhood, identified as being uh, behind uh, all sorts of conspiracies. Um, and. Uh, Trump benefits from that tremendously and did uh, as soon as he became elected. Um, now, on top of that, um, President Trump has also made a number of public statements with regards to um, Islam as religion, um, Islamism as political ideology. Um, and some of that, not all of it, but some of that was music to the ears of certain parts of the political elites within the region as well. Um, so the fact that um, he identifies, as Karim pointed out, um, you know, security as an overriding uh, concern and quite a narrow conception of security as well. It's not comprehensive security. Mm. It's a very narrow identification of what it means. Um, I think that that played out extremely well 
within certain parts of the region as well. Um, now, uh, as you say, a lot of has been made of you know this chemistry and this great relationship between um, of Tahsisi and Donald Trump. Um, I think that that's what it's been like um, for people who, who see this from afar in the first few months. Um, I'm not sure that that's the way we can expect it to continue because one thing that um, that I've begun to sense with different elites in the region is that in spite of the fact that on an instinctive level um, they, they might find some chemistry um, with how Trump looks at the region in certain ways, um, the thing that overrides, I think, the world's perception of Donald Trump um, is his unpredictability and his erratic nature. And I think that has truly begun to affect how even people who um, might have favored his presidency in the region um, are beginning to view him. Um, and frankly, that's a very legitimate concern. Um, he is erratic. Um, I now frequently expect that when I wake up in the morning, and I look at you know my Twitter feed that he's said something outrageous yet again, and, uh, and Neri does two days go by without something happening that's you know plastered all over the news, and uh, I think some people in positions of authority are beginning to get quite nervous about what that could mean. I think Kareem is right that there are certain determinants in foreign policy, um, but that's if the people in authority are aware of those determinants when they begin making their statements. And I can easily imagine somebody like Donald Trump um, deciding to tweet something out. And now a tweet can actually turn into an international crisis. Okay, certain statements can actually spill out of control. They can be rolled back, but then certain damage has already been done. Um, so I think that some are beginning to actually get worried about that, um, despite how, uh, uh, how they might have felt about him when he first became president. So, okay, so we'll go into more detail later, but can I, if, can I just jump back to something you said? You said that the, the State Department might currently be looking at a fairly narrow concept of security, all right? What do you mean by a narrow concept of security? How should security be viewed? So um, in, uh, in the security arena, um, mm -hmm. including within counterterrorism, um, mm -hmm. you'll have many uh, many specialists look at security um, in, in, in basically in one or two different ways, where there's, there are hard tools that are used, um, and that should take priority. Mm -hmm. um, and then there'll be another group um, that will identify uh, comprehensive security as being much more wider than that. And you see that playing out when you engage in counterinsurgency strategies, um, when you engage in, uh, in counterterrorism more generally, that you, know, you can't simply rely on these, uh, these hard tactics. They're important, they're relevant, of course, and nobody should say otherwise, um, but there, there may be other factors that, uh, that make the occurrence of insecure environments much more likely, and that has to also play out in your, in your, content, uh, in your security strategies. Um, and I'm not sure that that uh, comprehensive security paradigm is actually in place in this administration. Um, and it's certainly not incredibly popular within the region either, which is why I think they're, they're instinctively they're quite happy about it. All right. Well, we're not going to let that go. We'll come back to it. But I do want to turn to Kristen at the moment because Kristen's expertise is the Gulf, and the Gulf is often viewed as a hegemonous block. But of course, it isn't. So um, perhaps you could let us know more about. It. 
Thank you. And first, I'd just like to say that I'm delighted to be here. And I want to thank you, Mirat, for the welcome. And it's great to see you and took us some other people here as well. Um, I had a, I was a visiting fellow here at one point. Um, and so it's um, really exciting to be back. And I'm always happy to be here, kind of a second home at the Atlanta Council. Um, if you look at the Gulf states and their attitude towards uh, the new administration, I mean, I think most of the Gulf states fell very strongly into the anyone but Obama camp. They were very unhappy with President Obama's policies within the region and happy to see any change at all. Um, but I think they actually have quite a bit of um, positive anticipation um, towards a, a Trump administration in particular. Um, based on a few things, of key things that they would like to see change towards US policy, one and the number one policy definitely for Saudi Arabia and, and many of the other Gulf states is to see a tougher line on Iran. Um, they at this point are, are comfortable and in fact would support, I think, uh, the administration maintaining the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the Iran nuclear deal but they don't want to see any further normalization with Iran, and they want to see any move in that direction sort of rolled back with a much more hard policy towards Iran and trying to contain Iran's kind of uh, inroads in the Arab states in the region. And I think they have some room for optimism and looking at the early appointments of the Trump administration, some of the early rhetoric that's coming from the Trump administration, and some of the initial policies um, perhaps in Yemen and others, we can talk more about that. Um, another area where I think uh, they have some optimism is uh, maybe a little less, uh, for want of a better word, moralizing on the part of the administration. Um, there was some sense that um, the Obama administration just didn't really get the Gulf states, didn't respect them very much, for want of a better word. And um, there are a lot of statements about kind of that the Gulf states needed to do more on their own, that a lot of the problems that they had in the region and even with Iran were a result of their own weak governance inside of the Gulf states, um, these sorts of issues. And I think they're kind of looking forward to less conditionality, I guess, in their relationship. Not that there was a lot actually under Obama, but there was a kind of perception of that. Mm. Um, and so more kind of return to uh, a very, uh, in some sense, transactional relationship where um, they're going to be looking much more towards the commercial side of things. Um, and I think, uh, again, there's some indication of that already, the early days of the um, Trump administration. I know there's been some newspaper articles coming out of the State Department of people not having much to do in the State Department, but I've met with... Um, some people in the commercial and, and in the economic side of the State Department, and they're very busy and given a very strong message that they want the State Department, particularly their role in promoting kind of U.S. Uh, business abroad to be uh, prominent in this administration. That's something that the Gulf states are very comfortable with and, and eager to encourage um, in this administration. And also some of the limited uh, conditionality that the Obama administration put on Gulf states for weapons sales um, in particular, near the end of the administration, they, they held up a sale of F-16s to Bahrain. There's already been indications, um, I think, through the Senate Foreign Relations um, Committee. Corker, I think, made a statement saying that he expected those sales to go forward and that they would no longer be held up based on some expectation that Bahrain would kind of work harder to kind of bring the population together and some human rights concerns there. Um, I think just more generally, too, there's a, a general kind of cultural 
uh, affinity with the Gulf states. They're, they're comfortable with where the um, Trump administration is in terms of this kind of more personalized foreign policy. It's kind of hard to explain, but I think you know a lot of the um, uh, frustration also is that the Gulf states weren't getting enough of this personal attention and the sort of move that we see in the Trump administration even to running some of the foreign policy out of the executive branch, kind of talk of Jared Kushner playing a more prominent role, this sort of thing. That's something that the Gulf states are very comfortable with and, and quite good at building those kinds of relationships. Um, we have the Saudi Deputy Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman is arriving, I believe, today uh, to Washington. And he's supposed to be meeting with Jared Kushner with people on the Hill and is supposed to be getting a meeting with uh, President Trump, I believe, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, in the White House. So I think building those personal ties are going to be very important for a lot of the Gulf states. And I think this is even in preparation for a visit by King Salman uh, later uh, here in the spring, perhaps, or early part of the year. Um, we've seen other Gulf countries also making kind of their arrangements. Other media reports about um, uh, the Emirati ambassador, Yusuf Oteba, having very close relations with some of the personal advisors, like Jared Kushner, and having his ear. Um, and you've seen even just like uh, small things like Bahrain and Kuwait holding their National Day celebrations in, in Trump, new Trump Tower here. So, so the Gulf states know how to build these kind of personal relations. And I think they're kind of jumping on early in the boat to try mm -hmm. to build those close ties that they think will serve them well. Um, I think a couple of, of things they need to watch out for, though, and some challenges. Um, the populism that we have seen emerging in a Trump administration and, and even came through in some of the Obama foreign policy, I would argue, is, is something that's not going to be easy for Gulf states to manage. The most concrete expression of this would be the um, JASTA, right? The Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act that was uh, passed, you know, and just before the <coughs> elections last year. Um, that is, you know, basically allows for, for um, lawsuits against states' sponsors of, of terrorism. And this is something that could really hit um, the Gulf states in particular, um, all of the Gulf states, uh, even in early, some cases are moving forward. Um, and if these aren't kind of halted by some mechanisms that they might, but not necessarily have, but State Department intervening, um, then this could be very problematic for them, not only in, in, in findings that could result in financial um, uh, uh, damages, but also in the early stages of cases, you can even have discovery stages where they would have to be giving up information, um, documents, uh, even depositions. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a very problematic for the US and Gulf state relations. Um, but I think under a Trump administration, it's going to be really hard to repeal uh, just at all. Uh, so that's going to be one kind of flashpoint that we have to see how that develops in the courts and how that's managed. Um, the second is, I think you mentioned, or I think it's come up something about burden sharing. Of course, Trump administration, you know, from all of these early phone calls with leaders, has been very eager to kind of put people on their back foot that America is going to expect more. Mm -hmm. I heard this was very much also kind of the tone of the early conversations they had with the Gulf states. Um, the Gulf states actually do spend a lot of money. So if you start to get into the ledgers, they're spending a lot of money on weapons yeah. and these sorts of things. Yeah. But I think just more broadly, um, the expectation that in managing uh, particularly all of these different conflicts, if we're fortunate enough that some of them uh, start to get to a more manageable point, the, the huge investments that are going to be needed um, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Syria, uh, 
I think the Trump administration is going to look heavily on the Gulf states to be sharing in that burden, maybe even taking a leading role in that. And that's mm. obviously going to be very difficult for Gulf states that are facing a period of austerity right now where they're asking a lot more of their own citizens. Yeah. So that's also going to be a very hard thing to navigate. So if, if we can jump back to Jasta for just a moment, mm -hmm. I think you're, you're right, it, it would be very difficult to repeal. But um, it, it, did, um, it did cause a certain amount of disquiet at the State Department. How, how do you think something like that could be defrayed? Mm -hmm. I mean, what would, what would the Gulf states be looking for um, that would give them some peace of mind that this was being paid attention to, that this was being handled? Right. Well, what can I think, be done before the... Well, they're putting a lot of uh, money into this mm -hmm. and trying to investigate that and see what they can do. Um, I think certainly they would love to see it repealed mm -hmm. altogether. And like you said, there is some, some dissatisfaction amongst uh, foreign policy professionals and, mm -hmm. and discomfort with it. But I, I personally think it's going to be really hard to repeal something like that in the current yeah. climate. Um, yeah. and, and especially when you have you know, victims of terrorism kind of pushing for you know, what they see as a just resolution of these things. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think they're, the way it's kind of set up, there, there's some ways they could put more conditionality on it, because right now it's very broad. It's just any kind of uh, one who's suffered from terrorism, if they can find a state link, I believe that that can mm -hmm. go forward. So trying to get some kind of narrowing of that when, when it can be applicable might be one way. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as the cases go forward, I think there's another place where, like I said, the State Department can step in and say that they are kind of putting forth a good fourth effort to resolve certain issues. Mm -hmm. But again, I think the climate um, and the general tenor of, you know, of how President Trump got elected um, is mm -hmm. going to make it difficult to mediate all of these things. Thank you. The other question that you, you mentioned was, um, um, taking a tougher line on Iran. Mm -hmm. What constitutes a tougher line on Iran? Yeah, it's actually, you know, it's, it's easy to say and then it's harder to see kind of on the ground where, where all of these things will play out. Mm. Um, I think they're definitely looking for some kind of policies that will allow for more vigorous containment. Um, we can see this in terms of sort of maritime interdictions that can take place both in the Gulf and also in the, the Red Sea, like around Yemen. So trying to uh, prevent any sort of uh, Iranian kind of linkage to what they see as important theaters, mm -hmm. whether it be in uh, Bahrain or in Yemen. Um, stronger yeah. support for the coalition in Yemen. There's mm -hmm. already been voiced some um, uh, interest in doing that and some kind of conflation, I mean, again, since early days in the Trump administration, of kind of seeing how they can be tougher in Yemen. Mm -hmm. Both, of course, in the South, where we have the threat of, uh, I mean, counterterrorism operations against Al Qaeda and um, Islamic State, where we have uh, Emirati forces in particular, um, have been very active in that ground. We, you know, we already saw this early, <laughs> early raid that took place. That was cooperation between the two. Um, probably more interdiction there, but also conflation that Yemen might be a place where where they can show a stronger presence and somehow standing up uh, towards Iran. Um, a lot of the Gulf states are in a current campaign going along the coast towards the port of Hodeidah. So getting kind of support for, for this sort of campaign. Um, that might be one place where they, they can see this sort of symbolic kind of standing up against any further Iranian intervention. I'm a bit pessimistic that that can be very successful um, because Iran's posture is, is not, you know, 
and these kinds of physical things. It's more, much more about um, kind of the contacts and linkages that they have with, yeah. with different, you know, movements and things inside of the mm -hmm. different states um, and kind of helping with some kind of campaign against uh, Yemenis in the north is going to be rather problematic, I think, in the end. But I think at least the Gulf states feel that, um, if nothing less, this kind of strong posture that the U.S. is having towards Iran um, might allow for Iran to, you know, kind of be a little bit back more on their heels. We saw the Gulf states kind of taking that, that what they felt was sort of like maybe a growing slight Iranian unease with this administration and sending a delegation, the Gulf Cooperation Council states uh, mm -hmm. sent the uh, Kuwaiti foreign minister to Tehran to kind mm -hmm. of see if they could start some discussions. Mm -hmm. So I think there's at least some hope that, and, and that was reciprocated actually um, with a visit to Oman. So I think there's kind of some hope that at least the, you know, now that they have a less friendly administration or what they see as a less friendly administration, they might be able to at least push back a little bit on Iran and get some conversation going that will roll back some of this. Thank you. How do you, how do you read recent um, actions in Yemen by the U.S.? Um, I guess kind of the way I just mentioned, I think, I think so far in this very kind of quick action, I think they saw it as an easy symbolic target. Of course, okay. it wasn't symbolic. It was an actual operation. Okay. But in showing that they're going to be tough on terrorism and because it's also arena where they have allies, where they feel that they're sitting against Iran, it's one place where they can show that they're tough against both um, ostensibly in sort of an easier fashion. I don't think that's really going to play out to be that easy. Um, and so I think when we get beyond uh, these kind of more symbolic actions and, and deeper into Yemen, everyone knows any history of Yemen that that's not going to be an easy arena. No. Okay. Well, thank you. And thank you so much. So uh, mm -hmm. speaking of easy arenas, Libya, yeah. what do you think that, how do you think the US can safely move on Libya? Because, I mean, you had originally been uh, a proponent of um, international uh, uh, um, you know, international work in international there intervention. A, there but is a six-month-ago answer, okay. which was more American intervention in mm -hmm. the sense of a leadership of the process, either of negotiations and the support to the United Nations in a leading position. That the United States would be the, the forefront of the international coalition to convince, coalesce, push, pressure the various groups to come to, a, to, a, to an agreement. And with Americans, guarantee it could have been, it could have been done. And at the same time, the American leadership would have been very important because the Europeans are, are divided among themselves. The, the, the regional actors are one against the other. So uh, the, the unipolar country taking the lead, I saw that as positive. Now, today's answer is I really don't know. Um, I'm not sure that we want to have Libya high in the, in the interest of this administration. <coughs> they might go the wrong way. The fear that they might go <laughs> the, the wrong way is, is, in my opinion, too high. So. I, I, I will revisit my vision of uh, U.S. engagement and U.S. intervention. We have to see who is going to be in charge of uh, the foreign policy, what are the, the first steps they are going to make, and then see if there is an understanding, the will to understand what's going on in the country rather than prejudice 
and and prejudgment decision on where to side and what to do and how to and how to behave. But we have just been saying that so if not US engagement then there's likely to be someone else's engagement. They keep on saying uh, the process is led by the United Nations. The Europeans should lead it. Uh, and they, but, but neither the Italians have the strength to do it, nor the British or the French, uh, the, the, the French have the strength to do it. So therefore, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a non-leadership that, that, that is going to be involved. That makes me feel pessimistic about it. The regional actors is different. The, the, there is the, uh, the Egyptian and the Algerian ba balancing uh, uh, efforts to, 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 to define a solution in Libya. But it's shrouded in ambiguity. The Egyptians are very much in support of Haftar, even though they say that they do recognize the, 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 the government in Tripoli. The Algerians are, are all for the negotiation process. There hasn't been a meeting of the minds yet, of the regional actors that would lead, make me feel tranquil that they, they, they have a clear vision and a common intent to solve the crisis. Okay, thank you. So I have a question both for Hekel and, and Hisham, if you could um, both both take a crack at it. Hekel, you had mentioned earlier that you didn't think the government should be the sole interlocutors, uh, which brings us to the part of civil society. Now, civil society did used to be very vibrant, both Tunisia and Egypt, but we're now looking at a fairly beleaguered civil society. Both, And this administration has perhaps indicated that it might not uh, be as keen or as energetic on, on, um, uh, on dealing with civil society as the previous administration. Now, do you feel that that is accurate? Is, is, there, a, is there a point? How does one move forward on this? Or should the administration simply be dealing with governments? In whichever order you, you uh, take it first? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Mirat. Well, on the issue of civil society, when I when I raised this this aspect of the the, the, the problem, I wasn't uh, essentially meaning uh, or referring to the uh, traditional uh, stance of civil society. Uh, basically, I was trying to um, to raise the the, the idea uh, that the leadership for the the country and for the transition. Uh, the whole democratic transition does not come necessarily from the political, let's say, sphere. Uh, and that maybe we can find uh, skillful leaders. Uh, what lacks in the region is a vision, a real vision for the future of our uh, populations. It might be found much easily, I think, from uh, the, let's say, the elite, which is part of the uh, civil society and not necessarily within the political uh, elite. And if uh, uh, Trump's administration is going to do uh, politics as doing business, uh, I think that uh, the balance uh, will be found out uh, also within the, uh, the civil society. Added to that, uh, the, the, in, 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 in countries like Tunisia, essentially, we lost faith in, in the political uh, leadership. Uh, the last polls 
for instance, reveal that for the upcoming elections, local elections, maybe uh, the, the, the rate of participation will be very low compared to 2014 because the, the, the political parties were not able to deliver on uh, uh, highly expect, uh, expectations and issues, economy, social uh, development, uh, etc. So uh, that makes a shift also in terms of domestic interest from the traditional political uh, parties to maybe much broader uh, political party, uh, participation. Thank you so much. Uh, just something to add. Um, there was a lot of effort, um, I think, from different Western governments with regards to civil society, uh, particularly post-2011, um, on, uh, on the assumption that uh, different civil society groups would play a much larger role than what actually happened for a variety of reasons that you saw unfold in the region. And now um, I feel the pendulum has swung completely in the opposite direction, where actually we need to focus more on just hard security solutions, and civil society groups are actually irrelevant. Um, and I think that this is a mistake. And I think it's a mistake because you can't imagine that the present uh, case of affairs is simply going to continue in a very sustainable and continuous fashion. And at some point, um, one or many of these countries in the region may face different crises. And the states may not be actually, uh, the, the states in each of these countries may not actually be able to fulfill all of the requirements that they need to in order to solve those crises or at least um, reduce the, uh, the possibility that they, they turn into something much larger. Um, and civil society is precisely what would be needed in those situations um, to inject a, a bit of, um, you know, at least releasing of steam. Um, I'm not sure that everybody in the region looks at it like that. Um, and I suspect that it's far more complicated uh, for people in uh, policy arenas outside of the region um, to consider as opposed to, no, it's just a, a, a pure security paradigm that we're going with, within. But we, we suffer from a broad bandwidth issue, um, I think, in a number of Western capitals. Um, particularly if you're in Europe, uh, the refugee crisis, um, domestic, i.e. European issues with regards to things like Brexit and um, the rise of right-wing populism. Um, when you look at the region more generally, um, your concerns are usually going to be more about Syria, Iraq, Libya. Um, it's not really going to be about civil society. It's not, it's not the way that these policy arenas actually function. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing, but that's simply the way that it works out. Um, there's, limited, there's limited time in the day for people to address different crises. Um, but I do think that this is a very short-sighted way of looking at it. Thank you. I can just step in and add to that on the Gulf states. I mean, I think definitely the perception is there that the Trump administration is going to be focused more on state to state, maybe, maybe business to business. Um, but I think it, I agree with uh, Hisham, it'd be kind of a mistake to to not pay closer attention to the really important social and societal transformations that are going on right now. I mean, I know in the Gulf states we're facing a really historic generational transformation um, that the states themselves are quite aware of. Um, and if they don't use this current moment of austerity, especially with lower oil prices, to both improve governance, which a lot of them are interested in doing, um, and diversify economies, which they voiced an interest in doing, 
um, and especially in Saudi Arabia, some social openings that are taking place. Um, I think it's really important that we're aware of those and, and supportive of them. Um, and I know that uh, you know the Saudi leadership is here. Mohammed bin Salman is probably a lot of his visit will be here to kind of get that kind of support voice for Saudi Arabia as they undertake kind of this IPA of, of uh, Aramco and the kind of investment that they need. I think just understanding those kind of dynamics and seeing that as a, a means to kind of push for some uh, social transformations and better governments in these states is really important. And if I can make a plug for the Middle East Strategy Task Force that um, the Harry Center did here, it has a lot of really strong recommendations on those fronts. So it'd be a good resource to, to look at for this administration and looking at those issues. Thank you. And we didn't even ask her to say that. Um, I have, however, <laughs> been asked to point out two things. We are webcasting, so if anyone uh, would like to ask questions, you can go ahead and ask questions live on, um, on Twitter. If you have questions, could you please pass them on to the, um, the people in the aisles? And finally, um, we were supposed to have another panelist with us today, Dr. Nicola Pede, who unfortunately couldn't make it due to the last executive order. Uh, Dr. Pede, who is in fact Italian, had, had visited um, Iran and therefore will not be visiting the US for the next uh, almost 90 days. So uh, we're one short, but um, he, he, sends, um, he sends his best. But very, very quickly, um, I think you both met Haeckel and, uh, and I, this will be the last question before we start taking questions from the audience. Both Haeckel and, uh, um, and uh, Hishem mentioned two things. One, Haeckel, you, ha you had mentioned that um, Tunisia needed help with returnees, and Hishem, you mentioned refugees. Now, refugees are, the, Tunisia is, is struggling with a huge influx of Libyan refugees uh, at the moment, and uh, Egypt has its own issues. Perhaps you could both outline, outline how you think it might be possible for the new administration to help on refugees, because there have been concerns that they are not a priority, to put it mildly. Hekel, would you like to? Uh, at home, at their own home, so there is no uh, uh, deal to, to talk in terms of uh, refugees when it comes to the, to, to the Libyans. Uh, on the issue of returnees, uh, I think that there is big sensitivity uh, among the society on the risk and the threat such people can pose on the stability and the sustainability of our uh, the, the democratic uh, process. Uh, the, let's say that the, the American and the European who are supporting Tunisia on the security uh, level by training and uh, equipment and uh, providing uh, the needed uh, operational, let's say, uh, expertise of sharing uh, intelligence information. I'm not sure, uh, despite all these reports, that they are able really to, to, to support the government in tackling and addressing uh, the issue or the problem of dealing with its own nationals coming back from Syria or uh, or from Iraq. So I think that there, there should be uh, two things. There should be a, 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 
a kind of national dialogue uh, within Tunisia on how to address uh, this, this issue of returnees. Uh, and second, uh, policymakers in, in Tunisia should also envisage the, the proper solutions to, to, to address and to fix uh, with, the, with, the, with the Tunisians coming back from the front line in Syria and, 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 and in Iraq. There is no, let's be frank, there is no uh, one single solution. And even if we refer to the Algerian or Saudi uh, experiences, there were um, failures, uh, even though there, was, uh, there were also some success in dealing with this problem. But I think this is going to take uh, quite a long while, and it's very complex issues to deal. It's more domestic one. Uh, it can affect other countries, Europe, United States, but it, it, it's, it's more uh, a national uh, concern uh, to, be, to be addressed. Thank you. Thank so you. It, it seems very clear that the Trump administration doesn't particularly want refugees in the United States. Um, so one would assume that one positive out of that disgraceful attitude, frankly, um, maybe that they actually try to uh, help the resettlement or at least the catering for refugee populations within the region. Um, I haven't seen evidence of that yet. It, it's a logical conclusion of the thinking thus far, but um, there's a lot of assumptions that go along with that. Um, I think that when you look at the European side, um, the, very, uh, the very existence of large populations of refugees migrating across the Mediterranean Sea um, is, uh, is hugely concerning to them. Um, and right now they're coming from, they come actually from different countries in the region. Um, there is a constant reminder uh, that is uh, stated quite explicitly in different European capitals that Egypt is a country of around 100 million people. Um, so if there were to be a refugee crisis from Egypt, it would be quite, uh, uh, quite devastating. Um, I see no evidence that there is going to be one, um, uh, frankly, but I do see the uh, constant mention of it being deployed as, frankly, a bit of a tool. Um, and it works. Um, I think it works quite well. Um, moral or ethical is another issue, but it actually works quite well. Um, so the, uh, the administration's priorities in that regard, um, again, the, it's, it's very erratic. Um, if they don't want refugees to come to the United States, then one would presume that they want them to be well taken care of um, in countries nearby, um, which would mean uh, assisting in uh, providing care um, and, uh, and helping countries take care of those populations. But I, I don't see evidence for that yet. Well, the, the Europeans are now doing it. I mean, for example, uh, when Chancellor Angela Merkel was mm. in, in Egypt uh, three weeks ago, she did discuss in Egypt and in Tunisia yes. uh, help with refugees. You, um, is this something that the US might want to? Oh, I, I would think that that would be a very good idea. I just unfortunately don't have a great deal of optimism in that regard when it comes to the willingness or the interest and inclination of this administration in that direction. So we have a question from the audience that is to all the panelists. So I'm going to ask it of all of you. You, you can choose uh, which to answer. What should be the top priority of the Trump administration in the Middle East? Kristen, would you like to have a first bash? 
I always used to revert to, to women first because mm. they usually have an answer. Well, I mean, I, it's, it's hard to have just one. I think there's, yes. especially in this region when there, there's so many fires remaining still to put out and so much investment that needs to be done uh, just to, to get back a footing of any kind of stability um, and development. Um, I know definitely from the perspective of the Gulf states, um, their main concern remains to be Iran, um, and I think probably they're likely to get some confluence of interest, like I said, with the uh, Trump administration. <coughs> I guess my hope would be that um, as the Trump administration kind of push, buys into such a strategy where it looks like where they may do to put a little, apply a little more pressure to Iran, you know, both in terms of kind of tightening sanctions where they can, uh, the ones that they still have, and, and in partnerships in the region, that they'll really keep their eye open still, because um, we know Trump's a good deal maker, for how to use that increased pressure to, to mm -hmm. make some deals, um, because ultimately uh, there's going to have to be some ratcheting down of mm -hmm. de-escalation um, in all of these different confrontation zones, whether it be um, Syria or Yemen, um, as well as Iraq to some extent. Um, so I think that's going to have to be a priority, um, kind of looking at how they can bring a number of different and very complicated um, partnerships together to, to address some of these conflicts that are still going on. Which means uh, the answer is to put an end to the civil wars. Mm -hmm. uh, exercise all the effort they can, all the strength possible to focus on putting an end to the civil war in Yemen, in Syria, in Libya, whatever it takes, whether with the alliance with Iran or pressuring uh, regional countries. But that has to be the target, because until there is wars and this displacement of people and, and, and the things that we have been seeing, it, it's only going downward, it's spreading downward. There, there, there is no other option, really, to, uh, I think, above and beyond this one. If I could just add one thing to this. Please. Um, there, uh, there's a temptation, I think, in some capitals in the region and also in, in parts of this town, um, that if the United States could just do X or Y, then, you know, problems would be solved. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I, I would like, and I, don't, I have to preface this comment by saying I do not expect the Trump administration to move in this direction at all. all right? um, but if I had a magic wand and uh, I could suddenly bewitch the, the White House into moving in a particular direction, um, then uh, what I would hope would be that the use of American influence to encourage the region to move in its own multilateral fashion so that that ceased to be a, an expectation, and B, a need of any sort at all. Yeah. Now, I put a huge caveat with this because we saw, um, unfortunately, what happened uh, with in, uh, regional multilateral activity in the Yemen. Mm -hmm. It's not worked out very well. Mm. Um, but I think it's far more, uh, if I'm thinking long term, it's far more in the region's interest um, and, frankly, for, uh, for global security if... Um, the region itself is able to address its own problems mm -hmm. as opposed to constantly expecting the outside uh, to move in a particular way. Um, and uh, I, I find it very... Uh, you, you, you don't find people in Washington, D.C. Uh, talking about calling up Saudi to deal with um, you know, problems with Mexico 
And I don't think, see, I mean, people are chuckling as I say that because it's, it's so laughable. Mm -hmm. But uh, within the region, mm -hmm. um, there is this expectation that uh, the United States or certain European powers will, will be involved in, in settling certain disputes and conflicts. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think that's sustainable over the long term. And I don't think it ought to be sustainable over the long term. So in other words, help the region help itself. Yeah. yeah. There's, I mean, there's a lot. Actually, it's interesting. I mean, the Trump, just the, I'm sorry, I know I don't mean to no, no, too please. much, but no, kind of the, a lot of the language that they're using that people need to step up in burden sharing, and especially in the war against terror and against Islamic State, its main priority. You do see, um, especially the Gulf states, reacting in a way to that and trying to find ways in which they can show that they're doing something and willing to kind of step up. Um, we had Adel Jaber, the Saudi foreign minister, reiterating what he had said before, that he's willing to send troops to Syria. If you can come up to some constellation, maybe in this kind of area of trying mm. to create space for refugees or something, I don't know, they would really be needed. But at least they're saying that they're willing to send troops to help uh, counter Islamic State. Um, you have the Emirati counterterrorism uh, cooperation in Yemen. Um, and also, I think oh, one really positive thing is the Saudi willingness now uh, to re-engage in Iraq, which is going to be really important, I think, for them to play a role there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's also kind of coming through this sort of, like you said, you're going to have to see a lot more power sharing, a lot more actors kind of mm -hmm. playing different roles. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of coming off of the Obama administration that is going to continue under the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. so. Excellent. Thank you. Hekel, did you want to add something? I have a problem, frankly speaking, with these kind of questions, what should be the top priority? Because if you start listing one top priority, then it will be at the expense of other things. And if we uh, consider that the economic development would be top priority, then uh, we can remember what was the situation of the the region uh, in the 19s uh, when uh, I remember a French president, former, former French president, came to Tunisia to visit Tunisia and said, well, you have an economic ground and a, a real economic growth, so what do you need uh, else? Uh, what we need really in the region is governance through and the proper and efficient governance. And if this works for uh, across the region, I mean, all the region, from uh, Mauritania to uh, to Bahrain, uh, I mean, I mean transparency, the capacity to deliver on uh, sensitive and uh, give uh, answer expectations, people expectations, accountability, fighting corruption, uh, respecting uh, rules, uh, etc. If we if we can uh, really address and tackle these issues. I think that uh, more than 50% of our problems would be uh, resolved in, in, in the future. So I, I think you're probably absolutely correct, but if we jump back to Hisham's uh, point for one second, we say that it might be best for the US to help the region help itself. How do you see the US as helping um, governments, uh, countries and region with better governance? Well, I mean, it's, uh, again, uh, and I agree with uh, uh, Hisham, this is, I mean, the, the region should help itself. But uh, uh, there are uh, things that we can, uh, foreign donors, international assistance can do on the uh, issue of governance, uh, dealing first with uh, uh, trustworthy leadership in the region, 
making policies clear and transparent uh, also. And uh, uh, the issue of conditionality, for instance, uh, political and economic conditionality could be used as a leverage for uh, institutional reforms, uh, force for transparency and uh, the capacity to deliver uh, in the region for peoples. That could be uh, one option uh, that not only the US can do, but also European uh, themselves. Thank you. We have a quick question here by, by someone. So, don't the critical views of the CC presidency by Senators John McCain and Lindsey Graham put a check on the Trump embrace of CC or on the issue of giving aid without conditionality? Aid without conditionality. That might be for you, Hisham. Um, I mean, it's an interesting view. I'm not sure. I, I somehow suspected that, and uh, I stand to be corrected, but that surely overestimates the, the power and the influence of those two particular people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, again, this is a bit erratic. I, I don't actually think that that's a check on, uh, on presidential authority in this regard. Um, it certainly raises the issue and I think puts it into the public domain um, whether or not it would actually be an effective uh, challenge mm -hmm. um, to how the White House and the Trump administration more generally actually moves uh, when it comes to Egypt, uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, but again, this is a very erratic um, set of variables that we're dealing with. Um, I wouldn't have been able to predict the last few weeks worth of, uh, of policies. So um, you know, we may see a, a different set of priorities come about. I'm not sure. Thank you so much. So we have a question here um, that is maybe related to our earlier mention of support from the elites. How do you make sense of support for Trump in the region with his statements and policies that would appear to be anathema to Middle Eastern government's policies and identities? And I think well, that's for all of us. Perhaps you can take it first and then Kristen. Yeah, but I don't understand the question. <laughs> Are you saying? Why, why would there be support for the Trump administration right. in light of various statements that might have been made? The anti-Muslim statements that he made. Oh. Because it, 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 they prioritize the existence and survival of the regime over the respect for Islam or the religion or the identity of the, of the people. A very pragmatic way of looking at politics. The elites are saying, we like this guy because he's not gonna put, going to put us pressure regarding democratization. And these anti-Islamic speech, uh, we can put them aside and consider them as a folkloristic kind of attitude. It's, it's a very opportunistic way to look at, in my opinion, to look at the, at the Trump administration. Kristen, would you agree? Yeah, I agree. And um, I mean, it was interesting to see, I think one of the Gulf states was the only state that explicitly came out and said that they supported the executive um, mm -hmm. order that mm -hmm. came yeah, out and kind of said, like, we understand states need to protect their borders and <laughs> this sort of thing. We'd want to do the same thing. so. Uh, there is that way of, of looking at it. I, I think they also sort of probably rightly read what the Trump administration is doing in that a lot of that um, anti-Muslim rhetoric um, is really directed, I think, at domestic politics. And I don't mean that it's not going to have real effects, but I think where they really want to implement the anti-Muslim thing is on issues like immigration mm -hmm. um, and, and those sorts of 
things. Um, I, I think that's going to be, they, they may underestimate that <laughs> medium to long-term effect, <laughs> what that will mean for U.S. policy, and especially for um, elites and a lot of the Gulf more broadly. They send a lot of students here. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that Gulf societies are, are very concerned about. But I think they kind of see it as, you know, like we said, the elites, there's kind of a trade-off between the other priorities that they want and, mm -hmm. and feeling that this is something that's going to be here domestically, but it won't affect their partnerships mm -hmm. on the strategic level. Thank you. Haikal, did you have anything to add to that? Uh, I do. Please. Actually, um, I, I, would, I mean, just from my own experience uh, within the region, um, I think that there's, uh, there's two things here. First, it's a very interests, pragmatic way of looking at it, mm -hmm. um, that they try to put this kind of to one side, mm -hmm. um, despite the you know, quite incessant uh, you know, bigoted statements that have been coming out of the administration um, about not simply politicized groups, mm -hmm. if that were not bad enough, but also actually very essential identities. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot, and the second thing is that there's a lot of wait and see. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think there are a lot of people in positions of authority throughout the region um, that aren't quite sure what this all means mm -hmm. um, in terms of actual policy, um, and that's where their interest pragmatic sort of approach can actually work out. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's also, quite frankly, um, a lack of realization of how deep um, the ideological component actually is, if mm -hmm. not with the president himself, which I, I, I fully appreciate, but with other people within the administration. Mm -hmm. And there are ideologues in this administration, mm -hmm. and they're dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not quite sure how much that has actually seeped into uh, discussions in those capitals as of yet. Um, and we're, we're very early in this administration, and other mm -hmm. things can happen. Um, and I think that it'll be very interesting to see how they're able to manage all of that. They, uh, most of these uh, countries will not have to deal with, you know, public popular pressure from below mm -hmm. um, because that, that doesn't really affect them. Um, but um, even within the elites, um, when you get at their identities in that sort of fashion, um, you know, it's, it's quite difficult to then imagine that they can just carry on with business as usual because mm -hmm. they themselves will feel uh, this sort of abhorrence. Um, so I wouldn't underestimate that. Um, uh, over the last couple of days, um, I saw these, uh, these statements from um, uh, Congressman uh, Steve King um, mm -hmm. uh, about um, Gert Wilders in, in Denmark, yeah. sorry, in the Netherlands. Um, and, uh, and these are highly charged, um, incredibly bigoted statements. Mm -hmm. um, now, he's not serving in a senior position within uh, the Trump administration, mm. um, but he, he is somebody who does travel to the region on a fairly regular basis. Mm. I wouldn't presume that that will just continue indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And you don't think that these countries are going to have to deal with popular opinion? No, I don't think that they take that very much into account. Right. Thank you. Question for Dr. Dewen. Do you foresee um, additional policy or, or cooperation between the Gulf states and Israel? And on which issues? QME issues, mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's no question that at least um, <coughs> explicitly the Gulf state policies and Israeli policies have been coming closer together. Um, just as a consequence of both of them being very concerned that their number one enemy is Iran. Um, there's been some talk uh, 
early talk in the administration, we're looking at different security kind of uh, formulations that they can form in the region about forming an Arab NATO uh, that would include a number of the Gulf countries, I think uh, Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Emirates and Egypt, I think, mm -hmm. um, and an alliance with Israel being sort of a partner. Mm -hmm. um, I think whether that kind of actually comes about or not, um, the sort of intelligence sharing that's already going on, some of the initial feelers that are there are likely to continue and to, to deepen just because the strategic alignments are there. Thank you. I think we had one question, which is actually a repeat of an earlier question, so I won't take it, but we have five minutes. So I would just like to ask the panelists for just two minutes to just say, if you had to, to um, present an issue to the State Department, to this, new, to this new administration, just on one issue, what do you think the most urgent one would be for your areas, for your countries, larger country in your case, the Gulf? Oh, for the Gulf? Uh, well, I think I mentioned before, I, I think those societal transformations are really key and really important um, for the administration to keep an eye on. Um, and I think I talked about that in a little bit yes. of length. That this, the other thing, too, though, would be just to keep in mind, and I haven't, I've been trying to differentiate a little bit, but probably not as much even as I should, but that all of the Gulf states are not at all the same. Yes. And that you can kind of draw upon different states, have different sort of strategic postures on certain issues. And I think that's important to keep in mind, too, in approaching the Gulf states and different issues. So. Thank you. Okay. Regarding Libya, I, I would say that the most important thing I would tell them is, strengthen your participation in the negotiation process, back the, the, the attempt to find the negotiation, and don't swill from it. But there is one other issue more, more general that I really am afraid is going to come, and that is the banning of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States. That, I really think, is going to be a major, a, a major mistake. And that's why, if, if I have to sacrifice, I'll sacrifice Libya in favor of this issue, I would say, Mm -hmm. One thing you have to do, try, try to avoid to undertake that, that, that road and to, to come to a generic or general banning of the Muslim Brotherhood. That, in my opinion, would be a colossal mistake, what, whose consequences we will pay for a long time. What would you recommend instead of an outright ban? Just forget it. Just let the movement evolve the way it is, is going to evolve. Hit it if it evolves in a violent and, 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 and strengthen it if, if it, on the other hand, evolves into a political or goes back to become a political environment. But this idea to ban an entire political party with its history, with its values, with its consensus that it has, and ban it and make it an entire terrorist organization will be a major mistake. That's my personal. Okay. Oh, probably right. Like, I wish we could talk more about that, but we've run out. Heikel? mention uh, first thing is Libya and uh, the reason I'm, why I'm referring to Libya it's, uh, it's it works uh, for both sides for Tunisia and Libya as a strategic depth uh, we managed uh, uh, quite well our uh, political transition but still the economic and uh, security let's say transition relies on the situation in, in Libya uh, and uh, uh, how to uh, really restart uh, a 
economic cooperation uh, with Libya. So we need to stabilize and to find out solution in Libya in order to make uh, the transition uh, sustainable in Tunisia. The second thing is that uh, I would uh, refer to to engage and to reach out uh, in Tunisia with credible voices. Uh, I think that there are some people, some movements, some political movements that have exhausted their rhetoric and now it's high time to engage with uh, and to diversify also the people with whom uh, the U.S. government should uh, should talk. Thank you so much. The last question, if I may, rather than Hisham, maybe to, to Kristen and, and, uh, and Hisham, if we get back to the question of the Muslim Brotherhood for a moment. Um, Kristen, I, the Gulf it is, is not homogenous on this point. Um, do you want to give us a quick... 30-second take sure. of, of how um, how different countries uh, take this, and then maybe Hisham, you could right. finish up. Well, the United Arab Emirates has been kind of taking a leading role and mm -hmm. coming down hard on the Muslim Brotherhood. They've already declared it a terrorist organization. Yep. A lot of associations even linked to it, even <coughs> in the States. Uh, CARE, I believe, they also declared a terrorist organization. Um, and that's really part of their entire strategic positioning in the region and their alliances in the region. Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it be in, in Egypt or in Yemen, you can read a lot of what they're trying to do is to actually marginalize a lot of these different elements of political Islam. So it's really key for them. Saudi Arabia is really interesting because obviously it has a really strong and powerful Islamic movements and networks within it. Um, they've often been quite strongly kind of part of the voice of the government. But of late, I mean, under King Abdullah, they also declared the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. My reading of it is they really are curtailing a lot of the actions of the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, they're drawing a lot closer than you would think to um, the Emirates. At least part of the leadership in Saudi Arabia wants to pull closer to the Emirates on that mm -hmm. question. It's not fully there yet, but I think the trend is pulling slightly in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, Bahrain has a strong movement, but they're basically do holding really close to Saudi Arabia on all of these issues. And their mm -hmm. recent rhetoric has been much more being uh, anti-religion in, 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 in politics because they're trying to sideline the Shia religious movements mm -hmm. or actually any political movements, honestly. Mm -hmm. And they're also hitting a bit uh, the Sunni Islamist ones. Kuwait, of course, has the Muslim Brotherhood in the parliament, elected yes. in the parliament. Yeah. Um, and they've even been, to some degree, strengthening a little bit. They have a really strong voice in the parliament. They've been pretty pragmatic in trying to deal with the government. Um, and of course, Qatar has previously been rather championing Muslim Brotherhood movements around the region. So that is definitely one area where you have a lot of diversity kind of in views and, and, and divisions within Gulf states themselves. So it would cut, that kind of policy would cut across differently in different states. Um, and cause different problems in each one. So. An example of pluralism. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you've got one minute to wrap up, if you like. Okay. Um, I mean, on the MB question, I think that um, uh, characterizing it in any one way mm -hmm. um, is, uh, is very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, the MB is, uh, is a rather large uh, group of organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and I find it um, intellectually frustrating to seeing it uh, being generalized in one way, positively or negatively. Mm -hmm. um, and you have very different movements. Um, uh, and also within a single geographic space, there are many different trends. 
Um, uh, the idea that it's the Arab Muslim version of the Christian Democrats across the board, I, I think, is, is quite naive. Um, characterizing it as basically Al-Qaeda light um, is also quite naive. Mm. Um, different reasons, different groups, different trends and historical uh, tendencies. Um, mm. I, I can't really compare uh, Al-Nahda, which is an MB-inspired group in Tunisia, uh, with the Libyan Muslim Brotherhood. Um, mm. and I wouldn't want to do that. I think it would be very unfair to Al-Nahda. Yes. Um, and uh, I can't... The Libyan Muslim Brotherhood is, is very cultivated. It's very... Al <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh When it comes to... Uh, uh, when it comes to other... Uh, uh, impressions of that group within the region, um, they do vary. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think that, unfortunately, analysis um, inside and outside the region, for very political reasons that have very little to do with actual facts on the ground, they're, uh, they're quite out of date. Um, and I think they get it very wrong on a regular basis. Um, there's a very interesting event that took place um, in D.C. a few weeks ago that I found fascinating. Um, uh, it was held by the program on extremism with uh, with somebody that I uh, I know, John Jenkins. Uh, he used to be our ambassador to Saudi. Mm -hmm. um, he he was until his retirement the top Arabist in, in the FCO. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the report that he put together along with Charles Farr in the United Kingdom on the domestic side for the MB, um, alas, is highly classified. Mm -hmm. um, so it will not be released in its entirety, and it was never going to be released in its entirety. But I won't mm -hmm. get into that right now. It's like 300 pages long. Mm. Um, uh, it's, it's a much more nuanced viewpoint, I think, than characterizing it all good, all bad. You know, there are many different trends within this thing. Um, but I don't think we should be naive in one way or the other. I think we have to be very specific about which groups we're talking about and also about when. Mm -hmm. um, because the MB of Egypt in 2011 is not the MB of Egypt in 2017. Yes. At all. Yes. At all. Um, and, um, and not in, in not in a good direction. Um, now, when it comes to priorities for uh, the administration, um, the region in general and Egypt in particular is going through uh, a number of very structural demographic changes. Um, Ninety million people. The average age is twenty-four. Mm -hmm. Around seventy percent of the population is under the age of thirty-five. Mm -hmm. um, the provision of just basic needs in education, in health. Um, I think are, are tremendous, and I'm not sure that people really fully appreciate the, uh, the pressures that's going to put on society in general. The economic situation is very difficult. It's very difficult for it to, to just keep up. Um, you saw uh, last week um, pretty much spontaneous riots um, because of uh, the provision right. of bread. Um, there are reasons for that, but the point is that this happened in March. Mm -hmm. Ramadan is the most expensive month of the year, and it's only a few months away. It's in June. Um, July and August are the hottest months of the year. Because they're the hottest months of the year, it's when energy gets used the most. It's the most expensive months of the year in that regard. Um, that's not far off either. Um, those sorts of pressures are not limited to Egypt. Um, and all of the factors that uh, led to 2011 they continue to exist in mm -hmm. Egypt mm -hmm. um, and in many ways have been exacerbated um, for a variety of reasons, but they have been exacerbated, they haven't gone away. Um, and I think that um, we, we are so caught up in the moment, mm -hmm. okay? We're so caught up with the crisis that sits right in front of us mm -hmm. um, that it's difficult for us, I think, to imagine 
you know, what are we going to do about this coming up in five years, the youth bulge? Um, there will be two youth vultures, at least in Egypt and probably in other places in North Africa as well, over the coming 15 years. Uh, I don't see anybody really thinking about that. And I'm not surprised because, you know, we have the security question, which is incredibly important, uh, the rise of radical Islamist actors. Um, you know, all of these things are incredibly important, um, but we have to be able to think beyond that because they will come to bite us. Thank you. Well, we do need to think beyond that. Thank you so much to our panel. Thank you for your time. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you.